And as you're seated, I would invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 4. We're going to read verses 5 through 31. And as you turn to these verses, um, for those of you who are here when this series in Jeremiah began, you're going to not just notice a switch in tone, you are going to feel a switch in tone. Uh, in chapters 1 through 4, verse 4, you could really feel, I think, Jesus' deep love for Israel and his powerful desire for her repentance and reconciliation. But now, starting in verse 5, you are going to feel Jesus' righteous anger and powerful, heart-wrenching judgment. And those two very different feelings, separated really by the breath that you take when you stop reading verse 4 and start reading verse 5, are jolting. Uh, and it's meant to be jolting. And I think Jesus does it because it forces us to stop and ask ourselves how these two things go together. And as I was reflecting on this, I realized that these two things are held together by Jeremiah's commission as a prophet. So in verse 10 of chapter 1, Jesus tells Jeremiah, See this day I have set you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And what we see in this commission is the very hard reality that very often in our lives, before Jesus gets to that final act of building and planting, which is the part that we all really, really like, before that happens, there's usually plucking up, breaking down, destroying, and overthrowing. Uh, and then I thought, as Christians, I suppose we shouldn't actually be too surprised by this. Abraham doesn't become our father by faith until he's plucked up from his home and made to wander around a land not his own. David doesn't become a great king until he's overthrown from safety and forced to run from his life. Saul the Pharisee doesn't become Paul the Apostle until Jesus breaks down his eyesight and his pride and his entire understanding of the Bible so that he can be built back up again in the grace of Jesus. And of course, most powerfully, Jesus doesn't fulfill his mission to be the Christ, the one who saves us and brings us eternal life until he's destroyed on the cross. As Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Why? Because in God's world, out of the death of the seed comes abundant life. Faith grows as idols die. Love grows as pride dies. And eternal life and resurrection comes after the cross and Jesus dies. So what you're going to hear this morning then is the righteous death that Jesus needed to bring in order for his people to bear fruit and live. And this death is hard and it's terrifying and it's full of anguish. Uh, and as Louis Stoltman says uh, in his commentary on Jeremiah in words that I think sound strikingly contemporary to us today, he says this, he says, with disturbing images and raw emotion, the book of Jeremiah bears witness to a disaster that represents nothing less than the collapse of the world, cosmic crumbling, and the end of a culture. 
And so what we want to do this morning is start reflecting on this, start reflecting on why Jesus needs to pluck up and tear down and overthrow and destroy in order to build and to plant Israel anew. And uh, here are the answers that we're going to give. These are going to be our points this morning. The first is Jesus tears it down because of sin. The second is Jesus tears it down to drive us from our idols. And then third and finally, Jesus tears it down to drive us to him. So let's read Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 through 31, and then we'll start our reflection this morning. Hear now the word of God. Jesus says, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail, both kings and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying it shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind's too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around, because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent. For I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how do you do good? They know not. I looked on the earth and behold... It was without form and void into the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end 
For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of a daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, woe to me, for I am fainting before murderers. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let us pray. Our Father, as we hear this very powerful and difficult portion of your word, we pray that you would give us wisdom uh, so that we might hear it and receive it and respond well to it. Lord, we pray that you, your word would uh, build up our lives and faith in Jesus and that you would give us an understanding of uh, how you work in this world and in our lives to your glory. And Lord, we ask this all in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so the first thing we need to understand is that here Jesus tears it down because of sin. Uh, but first, I think it's important to say that this is not the only reason that Jesus has in the Bible for tearing things down. So for instance, the Bible talks a lot about seasons. And a season is just a time when something can be fruitful and helpful and good. So when something is in season, that means that it's the time when it's ready to be fruitful. And when something is out of season, that means it's a time when it's not ready to be fruitful or when its fruitfulness has passed and run its course. And I say that because sometimes Jesus tears something down because a season has come to an end. Just like you plow your vegetable garden under at the end of each season. It isn't because of fault or failure. It's just no longer time for that particular activity or those activities or that way of life to continue on. Uh, and as we face all these changes in our current culture, I think it's helpful for us to bear in mind this idea of seasons. Our lives are changing in part, I believe, because Jesus is transitioning a number of our activities from one season to another, which doesn't make the transition easy, but it doesn't mean that the transition is, is not punishment, even though it's hard. Right? Almost all transitions are hard, but it doesn't mean it's because we've sinned. Uh, and there's another reason that Jesus has for tearing things down in the Bible that we also need to keep in mind, too, which isn't really addressed in our passage this morning, but I think I, want, I need to talk about it. And that is, Jesus tears it down for reasons he is not going to tell you. Think about Job, right? God has his reasons. Job does not get them. And just to add this, I think undoubtedly one of the many reasons why Jesus doesn't tell us why he's doing something is because it helps our faith grow. So like Job, we learn to follow Jesus even when we don't understand what he's doing. We have to trust him, which is what faith means. And through that, we learn all kinds of beautiful truths, like Jesus is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. That you can trust him to provide for you, even when that provision seems impossible, and that it's absolutely certain that our end with him as his people is eternal life. But now with those said, 
those are not the reasons here that Jesus is destroying the nation of Judah. Because as he says in verse 18, so very clearly, your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. Here Jesus is saying that this is a necessary response to Israel's moral and spiritual sins. And I think there's a part of us that probably feels like this response is maybe a little harsh. Right? Jesus says in verse 4 that he is going to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruined without inhabitants. I mean, isn't that too strong? Isn't God forgiving and merciful? I mean, how does that response fit with God's goodness and with his love? And I'm going to give you two reasons from the Bible, sort of generally surveying a few things here. So if you think about all the events that have led up to this, from, the, from Judges to the end of 2 Kings, you would see two things repeated. You'd see God's continual call to turn from wickedness and live. And you'd see Israel's enduring response was a continual return to powerful, destructive sins. Sins like the oppression of the poor, the corruption of justice, one of the things that we haven't seen yet so clearly, but is throughout Jeremiah, the sacrifice of their children to Baal, where you'd burn them alive on the altar. Sins like idolatry, which is the chief sin in the Bible in the Old Testament, because idols bless our sins, call them good, and provide all the justification we need to continue doing them and not repent and find life in Jesus. Right? These are not little sins. These sins bring death to others, and they bring death to their practitioners. And these sins were not only uh, present individually, they were spread throughout the whole society. Each generation had been discipled in how to do them with more and more cunning. Right? That's verse 22. They are wise in doing evil. In fact, these sins had been practiced for hundreds of years, which means that by this point, they become an essential part of the way institutions functioned in Israel and the way that her leadership led, her, led God's people. So for us, we talk about destructive leadership culture, toxic environments that have built up over time. That's kind of like what Jesus is talking about here, only it's not the business community. It's the entire society. And now at this point, Jesus says, enough. You refuse to repent and learn righteousness. And I cannot allow idolatry, murder, oppression, bribery, rape, child sacrifice to go on anymore. I have to protect the rest of the world from you. And I have to protect those you're murdering and oppressing from you. And I have to protect you from you. And because this is built into your life from the top to the bottom, it's become your expectation that this is the only way life can really be. So for those who are here, if you remember back in chapter 2, in verse 28, Israel says in response, one of the Israel's responses to God's call to return was, um, there's no point, right? There is no other way. This is the only way life can be. There's no return from this. This is just how the way the world works. And so Jesus says here effectively, that means I can't do this piecemeal. I have to tear it down whole cloth. So one reason uh, for Jesus doing this is because Jesus needs to stop the evil of an entire nation, and this is the best way to do it. 
The second reason is because Jesus still wants to save them. As Jesus says in verse 14, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. And in verse 27, the whole land shall be a desolation, but I will not make a full end. By giving them the consequences of their sin, that now actually increases the opportunity for them to repent and find life. Right? The goal of this judgment, like the goal of Jesus' judgment on the cross, is salvation. And here I'd like to transition to our second point, which is Jesus tears it down to drive us from our idols. So back near the beginning of our passage, God says in verse 9, In that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail, both king and officials, the priests shall be appalled, and the prophets astounded. So notice, one explicit goal of Jesus' judgment is to leave Israel's leaders helpless and exposed. Uh, by the way, as a, as a leader in Jesus' church, this is a frightening passage. <laughs> I don't ever want Jesus to say, one of my goals in your life, Matt, is to leave you helpless and exposed before the church. That's what Jesus says here. Now, why does he say that? Because the kings and the officials, the priests and the prophets, each re represented, and each represent here, an institutional idol that Judah trusted in instead of Jesus. So later on in Jeremiah, maybe the next week, we'll hear God tell Jeremiah, go into Jerusalem and tell them about this judgment and call them to repent. And Judah will reject that message of judgment because they know their military is strong and they have strong military alliances. That's what the kings and the officials represent. We can't be defeated. Our kings are strong. They're wise. And we're allied with strong, wise nations like Egypt. We're safe from disaster. And they reject Jeremiah's message because they trust in the priesthood's ability to save them from the consequences of their sin. Right? We don't need to fear God's judgment even while we're worshiping idols and sacrificing children because we're offering sacrifices to God at the temple at the same time. Essentially, they viewed these sacrifices like protection money that the priests paid on their behalf. As long as the priests keep buying off God, we're going to be okay. Uh, and they reject Jeremiah's message because there were false prophets who assured them of God's continual favor. They would tell them, we have the Bible, we have the covenant, and you can trust us because we're telling you all the promises you want without any of the responsibility you don't. <laughs> now, I think it's important for us to know that all of these, even the prophets, were institutions. And kids, an institution is just an organization that continues an idea or a way of life or power through time. And in Jeremiah's day, what God's people believed was that these institutions of political power and religious power had been with them from the very beginning, that they were the source of their security and not the person of Jesus. And the fact that these institutions had stopped people from loving Jesus and following Jesus and being committed to Jesus didn't matter because it was the institutions themselves of the kings and the priests and the prophets that really helped them. These had become idols in their own right, and they stood in the way of God's people actually sacrificing, repenting, and following Jesus. And so Jesus decided very specifically that these had to be torn down. And before moving on to our final point, let's be clear what the tearing down of these idols meant. So look at verses 22 through 23 with me. 
I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking. And all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So if you're familiar at all with Genesis 1, you'll recognize that this is creation in reverse. And the point here is, uh, this judgment feels like nothing less than decreation. And when you think about the times in your life when Jesus has plucked up, torn down, and destroyed, uh, whether that was to remove an idol, like it was in Judah's situation, or because of some hidden mystery in God's all-wise will, you know that this description doesn't feel like hyperbole. Especially when it's something or someone that you look to for strength and help and security, and they're now helpless to help you. Or they're not even there to help you, they're just gone. So here's a story from my own personal life about an idol that Jesus removed, and I think is still tearing down. Uh, there was a time in my life when Jesus exposed to me that I had made an idol out of money. And it wasn't an idol of greed. I didn't want all the money. But the idol I had was I wanted enough money so that I did not have to trust Jesus for my daily bread. Right? And that idol came to me in the form of a monthly check. And there came a point my walk with Jesus, where Jesus didn't take the check away, which would have been highly ineffective compared to what he did for me. Instead, he just reduced it by a lot so that I had enough sometimes, but really was forced to have to go to Jesus in prayer a lot and say, what do you want me to do? How am I going to pay for this? And as Jesus tore down my idol, in a much less drastic way, obviously, than he's doing here in in, in Jeremiah, I learned a few things. I learned that my identity as someone who was content and calm was not tied to my faith in Jesus, but was tied to my sense of security that came from money. And once that was removed, I wasn't so content and calm anymore. I learned too, I didn't trust Jesus as much as I thought I did because I became impatient much more often. And impatience is usually an expression of fear. And as Jesus tells us, fear is not faith. And I learned that I had been passing this idol on to those closest to me because when they came and asked for help, I talked about financial security and not about security that comes from Jesus. All of which to say that my identity as a faithful Christian, mature, godly, wise, was exposed as not so faithful and mature and wisely in God. And I felt lost and depressed and lonely and that my whole life up to this point has sort of just crumbled down because this idol had been removed. It felt like a decreation. Now this is not a very dramatic story, right? We could get Christians up here who could talk about God delivering them from prostitution, drug addiction, um, mafia, life, all sorts of just very dramatic, powerful things that would be much closer to Jesus' experience here in the text, but I chose to tell this less dramatic story on purpose because whenever God tears down an idol, 
Big, small, dramatic, not so dramatic in terms of the outside view of other people. It feels like the creation. It feels like a return to chaos. You feel adrift and exposed and helpless and that an important part of your identity has been stripped because it has been and you don't know where to go. Which brings us to our last point, which is Jesus tears, us, tears it down to drive us to him. So once Jesus tears down our idols and our hiding places, we're left with two options, both of which are in our chapter. The first option, which I'm sad to say was kind of like my first response when God exposed my own idol of money, is to double down on idolatry. And that's verse 30 and 31, where Jesus just gets exasperated. He says in verse 30, Oh, and you, oh desolate one, so after they, this is after their idols have been snatched away, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Woe is me. I am fainting before murderers. So there's two images here, right? The first is of Israel dressing herself as a prostitute and offering herself to the invading army, which is crazy. Pillaging soldiers are not usually regarded as safe people. And the second image is of a woman who is dying while she's going into labor while an invading army is attacking. And she cries out in woe because she's going to die and be helpless to save her baby from the enemy. And here's how I think they go together. Uh, throughout Jeremiah and many of the prophets, Israel and Judah are compared to prostitutes who sell themselves to foreign nations or idols in exchange for their protection. And what Jesus is lamenting here is one response that he knows Israel will have once he tears down their idols and lets them taste the fruit of their evil, they'll double down and they'll try to sell themselves to this new, stronger nation and their apparently newer, stronger idols. Only this enemy is cruel and without mercy and they won't find welcome because idols always bring death. They'll find pain. They'll find death. What do you mean? Jesus says, like, what's wrong? Why would you do this? And then again, throughout the prophets, Israel being in labor is often an image of new life arising in the presence of death and despair. So that part of the image is actually hopeful. She's finally seeing in her rejection that she needs new life, but then it turns, woe to me, I am fainting, I'm dying before murderers. My breath is leaving me. In other words, it's too late. Death came before life. Death came before repentance. And in this, Jesus is giving a warning. One response we can have when our idols are torn down is to aggressively pursue new idols to fill the vacuum and not turn to Jesus. And if we take that option, we can find ourselves in a position where it's simply too late to repent because we're dead. And our idols killed us. 
That's his point in this very powerful image at the end of Jeremiah. Now, that is not what Jesus wants, but it is a response that he wants to warn us of and that he returns to throughout Jeremiah and throughout the Bible. You're going to want to run to death again because they're shiny and painted in gold, but that end is not life. Better is to respond like Jeremiah does. So did you notice in verse 19, you probably did, uh, Jeremiah says, he prays, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. <clears throat> As a part of Judah, Jeremiah knows that he is going to be judged too, even though he was not an oppressive idolater. Much like Jesus, right? Who, as a member of God's people, entered into judgment, even though he was without sin. Right? The idea of his suffering and his people's suffering here makes Jeremiah's stomach hurt so much that he doubles over. He rises. Have you ever been so nervous and anxious that you just... That's the image. It makes his heart ache. Oh, the walls of my heart. You ever been so sad and in pain that your, your just chest hurts, your heart hurts? And he even has heart palpitations. My heart is beating wildly. Jeremiah isn't a passive observer. He's not a distant messenger. He's part of the people who will face God's judgment. See, Jesus is tearing down Jeremiah's world too. And I think also you can get a sense then of how Jeremiah here is a, is a beautiful picture of Jesus who himself was not a passive observer or a distant, uh, distant messenger but who was actually part of God's people who experienced writhing and pain and heart palpitation and drops of blood, right? And then what Jesus does, Jeremiah did before him, he prays. And it's a surprising prayer, but it's the kind of response that Jesus actually wants. So it, the prayer is in verse 10. Then I, that's Jeremiah, said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people. That means you've completely lied to us. And Jerusalem, saying, it shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. Now, why would a prayer that accuses God of deceit, of lying, be the kind of thing that Jesus wants us to do? Well, it's because when you turn to God in prayer, even if it's a prayer of accusation and doubt and fear, it's still drawing near to God in prayer. Like Job, who threw all kinds of accusations against God, in which, while God corrects, doesn't call sin. As a matter of fact, he says, Job did not sin in all his answers. Or like the psalmist, whose prayer God hears even when they're all accusatory and blamey. Right? You did this. You abandoned me. Where are you? Are you asleep? Pay attention to me. Why aren't you here? That's not even summaries. That's actual quotations from various psalms, just without the Bibleese language in there. Jeremiah's prayer on his behalf and on behalf of Judah is one that brings doubt, fear, and pain to Jesus and lays them at his feet and essentially asks for help. 
My idols are gone. My world is destroyed. Help me. Help me understand. Help me trust that you are good in this. That you didn't lie. That it will be well with me at the end of judgment. Help me get through this. That's Jeremiah's prayer. And that request is an act of faith. It's recognizing that Jesus is here and is with us. And that even while we face judgment, we nonetheless are standing in the presence of the God who also brings mercy. And that even in the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus is there to shepherd us through it. And that as we go through Jeremiah more more and more, uh, you'll see this over and over again, that this is what Jesus wants. Jesus' goal is to drive his people to trust in him as a person, to find their security in him and their hope in him and their value in him and their future and to see that their idols are empty and full of death, but that Jesus is full of life even while you're tasting death and that you can trust him, trust him to hear you and draw near to you. Even when all that we have to say to him are words of confusion and fear and frustration and pain. So what I hope we see this morning is that when Jesus is tearing things down, whatever his reasoning is, the goal is to build us up in a relationship with him. And that that relationship includes the freedom to give him our fears and frustrations. And I hope that we all see, too, that Jesus offers us here uh, something that is eternally uh, blessed. He is, his tearing down will yield something far better than was there before. If we learn to run to Jesus while he is working all things for our good, what we learn is that Jesus is building up in us eternal life and eternal hope and confidence in a greater and greater sense that the triune God lives with his people. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Our triune God, we come before you this morning uh, acknowledging that when you are tearing things down and plucking up and destroying and overthrowing, that it is uh, extremely difficult for us. It's hard. It's scary. Uh, Lord, we confess that we don't understand often uh, why it is that you are uh, doing these things in our lives. But Lord, we pray that whatever your purpose is, that our response would be drawing near to you in trust and in faith. Lord, we ask that you would empower us to bring you our fears and anxieties and our tears. We ask that you would empower us uh, to follow you, though we do not understand where you are leading us. We ask, Lord, that when you are tearing down idols, that you would utterly destroy them uh, so that we would worship Jesus with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray, Lord, that you would do all of this uh, so that you could build up in us uh, the eternal kingdom of Christ, a deeper knowledge of your love, and uh, lives that look more and more like Jesus. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.